Section 5 of A Series of Lessons in Raja Yoga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Series of Lessons in Raja Yoga by Yogi Ramacharaka. The Second Lesson. The Ego's Mental Tools, Part 3. And now back to the mental drill. After you have satisfied yourself that about everything that you are capable of thinking about is a not-I thing, a tool and instrument for your use, you will ask, and now what is there left that should not be thrown in the not-I collection? To this question we answer, the I itself. And when you demand a proof, we say, try to set aside the I for consideration. You may try from now until the passing away of infinities of infinities, and you will never be able to set aside the real I for consideration. You may think you can, but a little reflection will show you that you are merely setting aside some of your mental qualities or faculties. And in this process, what is the I doing? Simply setting aside and considering things. Can you not see that the I cannot be both the considerer and the thing considered, the examiner and the thing examined? Can the sun shine upon itself by its own light? You may consider the eye of some other person, but it is your eye that is considering. But you cannot, as an eye, stand aside and see yourself as an eye. Then what evidence have we that there is an eye to us? This, that you are always conscious of being the considerer and the examiner, instead of the considered and the examined thing and then you have the evidence of your consciousness. And what report does this consciousness give us? Simply this, and nothing more. I am. That is all that the I is conscious of, regarding its true self. I am. But that consciousness is worth all the rest, for the rest is but, not I, tools, that the I may reach out and use. And so, at the final analysis, you will find that there is something that refuses to be set aside and examined by the I. And that something is the I itself, that I eternal, unchangeable, that drop of the great spirit ocean, that spark from the sacred flame. Just as you find it impossible to imagine the I as dead, so will you find it impossible to set aside the I for consideration. All that comes to you is the testimony, I am. If you were able to set aside the I for consideration, who would be the one to consider it? Who could consider except the I itself? And if it be here, how could it be there? The I cannot be the not I, even in the wildest flights of the imagination. The imagination, with all its boasted freedom and power, confesses itself vanquished when asked to do this thing. O oh, students, may you be brought to a realization of what you are. May you soon awaken to the fact that you are sleeping gods, that you have within you the power of the universe, awaiting your word to manifest in action. Long ages have you toiled to get this far, and long must you travel before you reach even the first great temple, but you are now entering into the conscious stage of spiritual evolution. No longer will your eyes be closed as you walk the path. From now on you will begin to see clearer and clearer each step in the dawning light of consciousness. You are in touch with all of life, and the separation of your I from the great universal I is but apparent and temporary. We will tell you of these things in our third lesson, but before you can grasp that, you must develop the I consciousness within you. Do not lay aside this matter as one of no importance. 
Do not dismiss our weak explanation as being merely words, 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 as so many are inclined to do. We are pointing out a great truth to you. Why not follow the leadings of the spirit which even now, this moment while you read, is urging you to walk the path of attainment? Consider the teachings of this lesson, and practice the mental drill until your mind has grasped its significance, and then let it sink deep down into your inner consciousness. Then will you be ready for the next lessons and those to follow. Practice this mental drill until you are fully assured of the reality of the I and the relativity of the not-I in the mind. When you once grasp this truth, you will find that you will be able to use the mind with far greater power and effect, for you will recognize that it is your tool and instrument, fitted and intended to do your bidding. You will be able to master your moods and emotions when necessary, and will rise from the position of a slave to a master. Our words seem cheap and poor when we consider the greatness of the truth that we are endeavoring to convey by means of them. For who can find words to express the inexpressible? All that we may hope to do is to awaken a keen interest and attention on your part, so that you will practice the mental drill, and thus obtain the evidence of your own mentality to the truth. Truth is not truth to you until you have proven it in your own experience and once so proven, you cannot be robbed of it, nor can it be argued away from you. You must realize that in every mental effort, you, the I, are behind it. You bid the mind to work, it obeys your will. You are the master and not the slave of your mind. You are the driver, not the driven. Shake yourself loose from the tyranny of the mind that has oppressed you for so long. Assert yourself and be free. We will help you in this direction during the course of these lessons, but you must first assert yourself as a master of your mind. Sign the mental declaration of independence from your moods, emotions, and uncontrolled thoughts, and assert your dominion over them. Enter into your kingdom, thou manifestation of the spirit. While this lesson is intended primarily to bring clearly into your consciousness the fact that the I is a reality, separate and distinct from its mental tools, and while the control of the mental faculties by the will forms a part of some of the future lessons, still, we think that this is a good place to point out to you the advantages arising from a realization of the true nature of the I and the relative aspect of the mind. Many of us have supposed that our minds were the masters of ourselves, and we have allowed ourselves to be tormented and worried by thoughts running away with us, and presenting themselves at inopportune moments. The initiate is relieved from this annoyance, for he learns to assert his mastery over the different parts of the mind, and controls and regulates his mental processes, just as one would a fine piece of machinery. He is able to control his conscious thinking faculties, and direct their work to the best advantage, and he also learns how to pass on orders to the subconscious mental region, and bid it work for him while he sleeps, or even when he is using his conscious mind in other matters. These subjects will be considered by us in due time, during the course of lessons. In this connection, it may be interesting to read what Edward Carpenter says of the power of the individual to control his thought processes. In his book, From Adam's Peak to Ella Plumta, in describing his experience while visiting a Hindu Gnani Yoga, he says, And if we are unwilling to believe in this internal mastery over the body, we are perhaps almost equally unaccustomed to the idea of mastery over our own inner thoughts and feelings. 
that a man should be a prey to any thought that chances to take possession of his mind is commonly among us assumed as unavoidable it may be a matter of regret that he should be kept awake all night from anxiety as to the issue of a lawsuit on the morrow but that he should have the power of determining whether to be kept awake or not seems an extravagant demand the image of an impending calamity is no doubt odious but its very odiousness, we say, makes it haunt the mind all the more pertinaciously, and it is useless to try to expel it. Yet this is an absurd position, for man, the heir of all the ages, hag-ridden by the flimsy creatures of his own brain. If a pebble in our boot torments us, we expel it. We take off the boot and shake it out. And once the matter is fairly understood, it is just as easy to expel an intruding and obnoxious thought from the mind. About this there ought to be no mistake, no two opinions. The thing is obvious, clear, and unmistakable. It should be as easy to expel an obnoxious thought from your mind as it is to shake a stone out of your shoe. And till a man can do that, it is just nonsense to talk about his ascendancy over nature and all the rest of it. He is a mere slave, and prey to the bat-winged phantoms that flit through the corridors of his own brain. Yet the weary and careworn faces that we meet by thousands, even among the affluent classes of civilization, testify only too clearly how seldom this mastery is obtained. How rare indeed to meet a man! How common, rather, to discover a creature, hounded on by tyrant thoughts or cares or desires, cowering, wincing under the lash, or perchance priding himself to run merrily in obedience to a driver that rattles the reins and persuades him that he is free, whom we cannot converse with, in careless tete-a-tete, -tete because that alien presence is always there on the watch. It is one of the most prominent doctrines of Raja Yoga that the power of expelling thoughts, or, if need be, killing them dead on the spot, must be obtained. Naturally, the art requires practice, but like other arts, when once acquired there is no mystery or difficulty about it. And it is worth practice. It may indeed fairly be said that life only begins when this art has been acquired. For obviously, when instead of being ruled by individual thoughts, the whole flock of them in their immense multitude and variety and capacity is ours to direct and dispatch and employ where we list, for he maketh the winds his messengers, and the flaming fire his minister. Life becomes a thing so vast and grand, compared with what it was before, that its former condition may well appear almost antenatal. If you can kill a thought dead, for the time being, you can do anything else with it that you please, and therefore it is that this power is so valuable. And it not only frees a man from mental torment, which is nine-tenths at least of the torment of life, but it gives him a concentrated power of handling mental work absolutely unknown to him before. The two things are co-relative to each other. As already said, this is one of the principles of Raja Yoga. While at work, your thought is to be absolutely concentrated in it, undistracted by anything whatever irrelevant to the matter in hand, pounding away like a great engine, with giant power and perfect economy, no wear and tear of friction or dislocation of parts owing to the working of different forces at the same time. Then when the work is finished, if there is no more occasion for the use of the machine, it must stop equally, absolutely, stop entirely, no worrying, as if a parcel of boys were allowed to play their devilments with a locomotive as soon as it was in the shed, 
and the man must retire into that region of his consciousness where his true self dwells. I say the power of the thought machine itself is enormously increased by this faculty of letting it alone on the one hand, and of using it singly and with concentration on the other. It becomes a true tool, which a master workman lays down when done with, but which only a bungler carries about with him all the time, to show that he is the possessor of it. We ask the students to read carefully the above quotations from Mr. Carpenter's book, for they are full of suggestions that may be taken up to advantage by those who are emancipating themselves from the slavery of the unmastered mind, and who are now bringing the mind under control of the ego by means of the will. Our next lesson will take up the subject of the relationship of the I to the universal I, and will be called the expansion of the self. It will deal with the subject not from a theoretical standpoint, but from the position of the teacher who is endeavoring to make his students actually aware in their consciousness of the truth of the proposition. In this course we are not trying to make our students past masters of theory, but are endeavoring to place them in a position whereby they may know for themselves and actually experience the things of which we teach. Therefore, we urge upon you not to merely rest content with reading this lesson, but instead to study and meditate upon the teachings mentioned under the head of mental drill, until the distinctions stand out clearly in your mind, and until you not only believe them to be true, but actually are conscious of the eye and its mental tools. Have patience and perseverance. The task may be difficult, but the reward is great. To become conscious of the greatness, majesty, strength, and power of your real being is worth years of hard study. Do you not think so? Then study and practice hopefully, diligently, and earnestly. Peace be with you. Mantrams, affirmations, for the second lesson. I am an entity. My mind is my instrument of expression. I exist independent of my mind, and am not dependent upon it for existence or being. I am master of my mind, not its slave. I can set aside my sensations, emotions, passions, desires, intellectual faculties, and all the rest of my mental collection of tools as not-I things, and still there remains something, and that something is I, which cannot be set aside by me, for it is my very self, my own self, my real self, I. That which remains after all that may be set aside is set aside as the I, myself, eternal, constant, unchangeable. End of section 5. Recording by Lee Smalley.